0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant.
1: America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're honored and delighted to welcome to this program Dr. Steve Hanke. Dr. Steve Hanke is a leading world expert on currency boards, measuring and stopping hyperinflation, privatization, currency and commodity trading, water resources economics and other key topics. Steve Hanke is a professor of applied economics and founder and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. As a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisers, he led a team of economists in rewriting the federal government's principles and guidelines for water and land-related resources implementation studies. In addition, he was responsible for designing President Reagan's major privatization initiatives. Dr. Hankey has also held senior appointments in the governments of many other countries, including Albania, Kazakhstan, the United Arab Emirates, and Yugoslavia. He played an important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. And we are delighted and honored to welcome Dr. Steve Hankey to America's Roundtable. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr.
1: Hankey.
2: Good morning to both Joel and Natasha. Great to be with you.
1: Dr. Hanke, uh, Milton Friedman, a monetarist and a Nobel laureate in economics, described the cause of inflation in the simplest term when he said, inflation is caused by too much money chasing after too few goods. So more money which is pumped into economy while the amount of goods stay the same, or drop, will cause inflation. Inflation is a general increase in prices and decrease in the purchasing value of money. Uh, Dr. Hanke, in your piece, U.S. inflation surge is harbinger what's to come, published in May, you said that the inflation figure of 4.2% in May did not come as a surprise to you. Now, the June's inflation index jumped to 5.4% from a year ago. In your most recent piece published in the Wall Street Journal this month, you analyze the money supply since March 2020, which has been growing the fastest since the World War II, at an average annualized rate of 23.9%. At the same time, Fed Chairman Powell says that the money supply doesn't really have important implications. Dr. Henke, how concerned should we be about inflation in America?
2: Well, we should be very concerned because Milton Friedman had the thing right, right in the bullseye as usual. Uh, it, it, another uh, dictum that Friedman had, remember, was m- money is, I, I should say, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And, and what he was saying is you pump too much money into the economy and pretty soon you're going to end up getting inflation. And, and in fact, uh, the money supply growth figure that you gave a little over 23 percent since the start of COVID uh, you know, in March of 2020, it's, it's been about three times higher than the rate that would be required if the Fed, that's a Federal Reserve Bank, wanted to actually hit its inflation target of 2%. So it's growing three times faster than that, meaning that we're going to have a lot of inflation. Now. John Greenwood and I co-authored that Wall Street Journal article together. John is not only a good friend and fellow at the Johns Hopkins University, but he's a chief economist at Invesco in London. We think by the end of this year, the inflation rate will be in the United States, not 5.4%, but between six and 9%. So we're, we're, we're headed down the inflation path. It's all baked in the cake because the money supply has been growing so fast. Why Chairman Powell, uh, said what he he said he, he's just ignoring the money supply is beyond me how how the head of a central bank any place in the world can say that money is irrelevant is it, just beyond my comprehension I, I mean it's just the ultimate in silliness but there's a lot of silliness going around um, you're down in Washington the place is a silly town you know Friedman is right and everything you're reading in the press, and this is one of the big problems in the United States, the the press is just an echo chamber. Uh, everybody's saying exactly the same thing. And no one, no one is talking about inflation as a permanent problem. They they say it's a temporary thing. It's, it's due to the fact that the economy is just cranking up again. they glitches in the supply chain getting going and all of these things, that's all you read about in the newspaper over and over and over again. The articles in the newspaper, whether it's reportage or op-ed articles, you you will never see the words money supply. You will never see the uh, the, the name Milton Friedman. Never. So it's all been censored out. The the press is, is completely controlled by the elites in Washington, and that is not part of the message they want to be putting out. They, they want to put the Powell Federal Reserve message out, oh, this is a little temporary glitch in the road, don't worry about inflation. Now the reason for that is that the Fed wants to manage inflation expectations, because if people get worried about inflation, then the, the Fed loses control of things, it loses its legitimacy. And, and that's what they're trying to fight against.
1: Right. And in this most recent piece that you said, you co-authored by, with John Greenwood in the Wall Street Journal, uh, you said that according to monetarism, asset price inflation should have occurred with a lag of one to nine months. Then with a lag of six to 18 months, economic activity should have started to pick up. Lastly, after a lag of 12 to 24 months. Generalized inflation should have set in. Don't you think that Powell is not aware of that?
2: Well, he, if, if he is, he's not talking about it. But that, that's exactly what's happened since March of 2020, by the way. We had the injection of money started revving up then. And, and it's followed these lags that you've given, Natasha, just to a T. First, what did we have? An explosion in asset prices. The stock market went to the moon almost. Then the economy is cranked up. The Atlanta Federal Reserve, which is very accurate on these uh, for, on their forecast for GDP growth, they they think real GDP will grow by ten and a half percent this year. That's that's almost a record growth. And now this inflation's coming in. So everything, the monetarist model is the only accurate way to assess the course of the economy. Where is the economy going? It's all about money. Money dominates. Money matters. Forget the rest of it. It's money that counts.
1: And uh, Dr. Henke, what would be the best policy to reverse these trends at this stage?
2: Well, not uh, to reverse, it is to slow the money supply growth down. Uh, The the optimum rate of growth if, if the fed actually was serious about hitting its inflation target of 2% they should be growing the money supply broadly measured the so-called m2 measure by 6% a year they're growing at a little over 23% so that's that's what they should do they should s- slow the thing down and and uh, and that that would solve the problem going forward the problem for 2000 and the rest of this year, and 2022 and 2023, it's all baked in the cake because you can't take back what they what they've already put into the system. They've given the thing a big shot of fuel, and and you can slow it down going forward. But we we have all this inflation is is already in the picture. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of arithmetic. It, it, we're not guessing here. This is the kind of thing a high schooler could do and figure out. Now, the, the bright boys at the Fed are certainly, and the bright gals at the Fed are, are not doing the right thing. They're not figuring out, they're not getting a sharp pencil out. They they really seem to not know what they're doing. That, that's a problem. They they never really have, I mean, who's the dean of monetary economics for the 20th century? It's Milton Friedman. You, you wonder if they've even read Milton Friedman or even heard his name. Mm.
0: Indeed, Dr. Hanke. In fact, uh, Dan Hanninger at the Wall Street Journal just uh, wrote a piece recently this past week titled A Pandemic of Misrule. He talks about the anti-government protests in Cuba, South Africa, Haiti, elsewhere, and about the random chaos. And I quote Dan Hanninger. He says, Cuban communism is 60 years old, like the Berlin Wall, Castro's Cuba, became a political monolith, a lump of seemingly immovable repression. An apologist for both the Soviet Union and Cuba long argued for a kind of a moral patience, believing that someday the sacrifices and compromises would be validated with the arrival of what they now call equity. On Cuba, they still do. Nicole Hannah-Jones, architect of the New York Times 1619 Project, said, and I quote her, The most equal multiracial country in our hemisphere, it would be Cuba, she added. That's largely due to socialism, which I'm sure no one wants to hear, unquote. Dan in response, as not anymore in Cuba, it appears. Dr. Hanke, while the Cuba protests have been underreported and some blaming the pandemic, how do you view the impact of socialism in Cuba today? And what are its lessons for America's younger generation that appears to have an infatuation with socialism?
2: Well, they do have uh, equity in Cuba. They have equity of poverty and misery. So it's a terrible situation. I, I measure the inflation rate down there every day. The inflation rate is 112%. We, we're talking about the United States. Everybody's re- revved up and excited about 5.4%. Well, uh, inflation in Cuba is 112% today. I just measured it today. So there's that aspect the inflation, the equity of poverty. The place has been in a death spiral economically for a long time. I mean, this, this is a standard socialist model. I mean, uh, Natasha coming from Croatia knows very well Yugoslavia inside and out and what the, what that story was about by the time it collapsed and they had a civil war in, in 1991. But, but let's talk about Cuba. The reason that communists are in power is largely due to the sanctions that the United States has put on Cuba. No matter what political party in the United States, there have been sanctions imposed in one form or another. Now, this allows for what's called the rally around the flag effect. The leadership, the Castros, and, and now the new regime, have been able to point to sanctions, which they're doing right today, and saying, you know, the reason things are bad in Cuba is because the blockade the U.S. has put on, sanctions the U.S. has put on, et cetera, et cetera. So sanctions are a complete disaster. We, we could say always and every place sanctions are ineffective, counterproductive, and they don't work. And, and all you have to do is look at Cuba. It's the same in North Korea, by the way. Why, why is the North Korean regime in power? Because of the Western sanctions. They're the stupidest possible thing completely go against free trade, liberal economics and so forth. We're putting sanctions on everybody, weaponizing the US dollar and so forth. So that is the reason we have communism in Cuba. You ask all this equality of poverty and the, the economy tanking and so forth and troubles down there all the time, constantly. Why do the communists stay in power? Well, they stay in power mainly because of the Western sanctions. It's the same in Venezuela. Venezuela is exactly the same. The only reason Madeira is in power and and Chavismo is being practiced in Venezuela are, are these stupid U.S. sanctions because Madeira has a point. He says the U.S. is at war with us. The U.S. is causing all these problems with these sanctions. Well, as a result of that, you get a huge rally around the flag effect that a lot of Venezuelans say, well, Madeira's got a point. The U.S. is against us. They They are at war with us. They're the reason we can't get food, the reason we can't get pharmaceuticals, et cetera, et cetera, the reason we can't
1: travel. And the fact is, as you mentioned, Yugoslavia and Croatia and all these countries with corrupt regimes that had hyperinflations because they had a control of printing press. So they were just printing money, giving it to their friends And that's how hyperinflation mostly happened in those countries. And the interesting thing is to pay attention to, we haven't experienced very high inflation in the United States yet. But what happens with inflation increasing is that the government pays with delays, let's say, if government owes to businesses or individuals, it pays with delays without indexing for inflation. So what happens if it pays in 60 days, maybe it's going to have just 60% of the value, the debt that it's owed. And the other way around, the governments were indexing for inflation or dollarized or actually tied to another pegged currency, when they were on the receiving end. So that's something that happened in those regimes that we have to pay attention to what can happen in the United States eventually. And uh, Dr. Hanke, in one of your interviews, you said for developing countries, the best way to eliminate the possibility of a hyperinflation would be to mothball their central banks and put them in museums. And you suggest dollarization or currency board in order to keep currency stable. Uh, Dr. Henke, you were the architect of currency boards in Estonia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, among others. Could you kindly share with the listeners how do currency boards work? Do these countries still have currency boards? And when you think about dollarization, because of high inflation of a US dollar, can dollarization be practiced today?
2: Back to Yugoslavia, just to remind people of what was going on, because I was the one who measured it. Actually, I was a chief advisor in the Markovic government uh, in 1990 until a civil war started in 1991. And in January of 1994, the the hyperinflation peaked out at, at 313 million percent per month, not per year, per month. So you talk about if you defer, you, you said well you you wait a few days to pay somebody what you what you owe them. Well, at three hundred and thirteen percent a month, I can tell you what was going on in Yugoslavia. The Yugoslav dinars were <laughs> melding in your hand. You know, I mean, if you if you waited an hour or two to to pay somebody back, it was a good deal. <laughs> they were getting. The, the recipient of that, those dinars was getting a bad deal if you waited certainly a day. Uh, it, it, it was just unbelievable. So the currency board, what, what is a currency board? You mentioned Estonia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. In those countries, when the currency board was put in, in very difficult situations, by the way, in most cases, they, they were in, in a state of, well, at least Estonia, and Bulgaria and Bosnia, Herzegovina, they, they were in a state of hyperinflation with the inflation rate being over 50% per month. So they the local currency was issued by a currency board. The local currency traded at a fixed exchange rate and was freely convertible to an anchor currency, which in the case of Estonia and Bulgaria and Bosnia Herzegovina was the Deutschmark Mark at the time, and and in Lithuania it was the U.S. dollar. So you have an anchor, you have a local currency. It's the, the anchor it backs the local currency a hundred percent. So it's if you don't like the local currency, you take it and exchange it, and you it's credible. You always know there's going to be a reserve to finance the redemption of your turning in your local currency for the anchor. So they've worked like a charm. They smashed inflation within like 24 hours. Estonia eventually and Lithuania both went into the euro, but this was easy to do because by the time they did that, the euro was the anchor for both local currencies, the the Lithuanian Litus and the Estonian Kroon. And the Kroon and the Lidus were clones, you see, of of the euro. They were the same thing as the euro. So it was easy for them to, to, just like turning on a light switch going into the euro. So, So that's those two. Bulgaria still has its currency board. After 24 years, it's operating perfectly, disciplining very well because they don't have a central bank, you see, that can issue credit to the government when you have a currency board or with dollarization by the way so the fiscal affairs are disciplined and as a result this Bulgaria of all places has the second lowest debt to GDP ratio in all of the European Union the lowest one actually is Estonia so Estonia has the lowest and Bulgaria is right behind now Bosnia Herzegovina as you know that territory, Natasha, it, it's more the situation is more complicated and difficult. the The currency board works very well. every everything is fine. The problem they have in bosnia, they they figured out ways to basically wiggle around on the fiscal front and and not be as disciplined as as Lithuania was, Estonia was and Bulgaria were. So, so they do have a little bit of a problem with the debt to GDP, but, but there, are, there are only two unifying forces in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that is, one, the currency board. The, the convertible marka is uniform, it works very well, it's, it's just as good as the euro, which is the reserve currency, and the license plates, everybody has the same license plate. In Bosnia-Herzegovina. Everything else is more or less a disaster. They've never really settled down the, after the civil war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's still, it's a dicey situation that, that literally, I think, could explode at any moment from a from an ethnic point of view.
1: Uh, would you suggest the currency board for United States?
2: Well, not, not really. If we, we had essentially a currency board type of operation under the gold standard if we went on to a gold standard which of course we stopped any connection to gold in the United States in 1971 Richard uh, Richard Nixon was a president a so-called conservative he basically threw the baby out with a bathwater when he closed the gold window in 1971 so we have not had any kind of anchor or redemption possibility in the United States since 1971. And and neither does anyone else, by the way, right now. Actually, since 1973, the Bretton Woods Agreement that tied all the major currencies together, that, that was thrown out of the window. So since then, everyone has just been producing pure fiat money. I mean, it, it's not backed by anything.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable, we've been joined by Dr. Steve Hanke, a leading world expert on currency boards, measuring and stopping hyperinflation, privatization, currency and commodity trading, water resource economics and other topics. In fact, Dr. Steve Hanke is Professor of Applied Economics and founder and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. We thank you so much for your principal leadership, Dr. Hankey, and for your prudent counsel and advice uh, to members of Congress, to leaders here in Washington, D.C., and to the uh, stakeholders, the engaged citizens of our country. Thank you indeed for joining us on America's Roundtable.
1: Thank you, Dr. Hankey.
0: Thank you. Good to be with you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host,
1: Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C see, brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.